Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli. And I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. And we're happy to bring to you now today, uh, Kyle Milius. And Kyle Milius comes from us from San Marcos, Texas, and he's got multiple concepts. And so he's going to tell us a little bit about how his life is and how managing independent restaurants when they're on different brands, different types of service, and how, how all that seems to work. So Kyle, welcome to Corner Booth. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Kyle, tell us about how you got into the restaurant business. What was your journey? Did you uh, start out with a, it's a family business or just uh, something that you uh, always desired to do or something that just sort of happened uh, at some point in your life and you decide this is what you wanted? Uh, I think it's similar to a lot of people in the restaurant industry where you can trace back a series of questionable decisions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm joking. You know, I, I started out, it's definitely not a family business. I started out in the restaurant business at an early age. About the age of 17, I started waiting tables and then kind of progressed through a corporate Mexican food restaurant in the Fort Worth area and became a, you know, a corporate trainer and a, and a bartender for them. Really just kind of fell in love with the service industry at an early age. You know, I think those of us that have been in this industry and, and uh, really know what it really is that we do, it's, it's all about the people, whether it be the people you work with or the people that you're serving. It just felt natural at a very early age. And I didn't know at that time that's what I was going to do uh, as a career, but I, I knew I enjoyed it. And then for some reason, my parents kept sending me to colleges, even though I continued to be a terrible student, dropped out a couple of times. Um, but, you know, the, the food industry served as a, a great job while I was fighting my way through college. I actually ended up managing some coffee shops in the San Marcos area where I, where I ended up at my last university at Texas State University and, uh, and learned a lot. That was really my first gig for an independent operator. You know, it was kind of a, a one-off coffee shop and, and I launched his second one for him and, and really saw that it's doable, you know, um, that, that you, you can start a small uh, restaurant or coffee shop and, uh, uh, he, uh, he was a mentor to me early on and, and, and taught me a lot. And so a little bit of time passed and, uh, I ended up meeting a, a woman named Kristen McDermott, who was my co-founder of the Rootseller Cafe, which was our, our very first concept. And she also had been a business owner and had a coffee shop of her own at a very early age. I think but the combination of the two of us, uh, knew enough just to be dangerous <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and we borrowed all, all of $10,000 from a family member and, and we found a place that is now the home of the Root Cellar Cafe that had uh, had a couple of people go out of business within the last year. The, the landlord was in a position to work quite a deal with us. And that was the only way we had a, a fighting chance. And, and so we jumped in and uh, that was in 2005. So, so tell us about the Root Cellar concept and what uh, inspired you to go in that direction for your first uh, concept? 
Yeah, absolutely. The the Root Cellar Cafe, and for those of you that aren't familiar with San Marcos, San Marcos, Texas is just outside of Austin, just a little south of Austin, Texas. And uh, much like Austin, it's uh, uh, home to a lot of wonderful musicians and artists, a lot of very creative people. And we, you know, we kind of looked around the town at that time and, and saw that it didn't seem like there was any any restaurants or cafes that embodied the creativity of the town of San Marcos. And uh, we, we thought there was a real need there. And uh, so we started trying to craft a, a concept that would fill that niche. And, uh, you know, so from the very beginning, you know, everything we, we did, we tried to put a little spin on it. The The actual restaurant in the early days was a was an art gallery. You know, we would host art openings, artist openings monthly to really entrench ourselves with the artist community there in San Marcos. And then we really, you know, took great links early on to make every dish as beautiful as we could. You know, and this was 2005. It was kind of early on. And a lot of what, what we see is, is much more common now. But, you know, we, we did reductions and decorated every plate that went out and, you know, spent a lot of time on the presentation. The Root Cellar Cafe is in the basement of a historical building in downtown San Marcos. It is uh, filled with, as, as we continue to talk, you'll see a common theme here. I love very old buildings and old things. And so the root cellar was kind of my start with a, a love-hate relationship of old buildings where I had mm-hmm. concepts. And yeah, and so we filled it with, uh, you know, what, what really became one of our trademarks was out of necessity in the very beginning because we had so little money in startup capital. Um, we spent about a year while we were building our concept and our menu going to old, you know, garage sales and, and antique shops and finding a good deal on four old dining room chairs and stacking them in our little, you know, uh, bedroom apartment. And then we'd find a table that we could afford and we'd stash that somewhere. And so everything in the restaurant was mix and match. And it's something that holds true still today. And a lot of people think it's a very uh, quaint feel, a lot of old dining room sets and things like that. But, you know, that was, that was purely out of necessity. Uh, from the very beginning, because we couldn't afford uh, matching, you know, uh, uh, tables or, or chairs or, or even even silverware in the early days was uh, uh, hand-me-downs from the linen guys who would who would collect buckets of silverware that were thrown in the, the dirty linen bags and, and uh, provide them with us. So not even the silverware would match there. So it was kind of this eclectic, artistic mix and match uh, vibe there at the retailer. Has uh, the community that, you know, you seem to build this around the artists, uh, uh, musicians, um, people who might consider themselves creative and hip. Uh, Has it become a kind of a a gathering place in town for them? Have they supported it with loyalty? Is the vibe vibe still as authentic as you hoped it would be? Yes, I would say, I would say that's definitely, definitely true. And it took some time, right? You know, obviously we were, going on 18 years now. So it's, it's kind of funny as a aging restaurateur to look back and, and think about all the different, you know, kind of generations that you go through there, um, whether it be with staff or concept as it evolves, but, uh, but yes, it, it didn't take too long for, for the community to really, uh, uh, it resonated with the community pretty early on in, in the life of it. Um, and, you know, I don't know if it was intentional, but we ended up employing, especially in the front of the house, a, a lot of 
musicians and artists as well. They gravitated to the place, right? So not only was that, you know, kind of something that we were trying to embody and in, in what we created for the community, um, it, it lent itself to our work staff, you know, our, our, our workforce as well. And, and I think that's something that, um, especially in, in the, the San Marcos community, I think that's something that really resonated. And, you know, from, our, you know, early on, you know, I knew that I didn't want to have standard uniforms for the employees. Um, I wanted to, you know, obviously have some dress code, but allow some individuality with the way they dressed and, uh, uh, you know, allow some tattoos and some, some earrings and some of those things, even from, you know, a little earlier than, than maybe it was widely accepted within our industry. Um, and I, I saw, and I believe that from our early, uh, the early days of the restaurant, it allowed our staff to be themselves in a way that they really appreciated. And I think that they were more comfortable um, when they were providing, you know, when they were serving uh, our guests. And, and I think it translated to better service. That's interesting. Good. Uh, tell us a little bit about the operation. I, I can get a good feel for it, understand design decor, love the electric, eclectic feel and how the community embodied that. But from an operational standpoint, is it lunch and dinner? What's the menu like and does it have a full bar? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Sorry, I, I left that out. Very important piece. Um, so we we originally started as breakfast and lunch only. Okay. So we were open six days a week, uh, 7 a.m. to 4, 4 p.m. Um, and we were closed on Mondays, dark on Mondays. And uh, that was some some great advice that we had, had gotten from a, a restaurateur before we opened. Thank, thank goodness that was the case because I don't think we would have had um, – as all startup restaurateurs know, there's just not enough hours in the day, especially in the early days when you're, um, you know, trying to wrap your head around everything that's required of you. You know, Mondays were invaluable to us in the beginnings and to try to get payroll done and to try to, you know, <laughs> fix our old aging building and, uh, you know, um, try to maybe catch up on a, a couple hours of sleep. So we were breakfast and lunch only seven to four. Um, and then about um, a little less than a, a year in, uh, we decided to add dinner. And, uh, you know, once we kind of got our legs under us a little bit, we added dinner. And uh, originally, we only added dinner on Thursday, Fridays, and Saturday nights. Um, still a very small operation. You know, I, you know, full disclosure, I, I waited tables there for the first, oh, close to three years and lived off my tips alone. And that's, uh, that's kind of how we, we were able to scrape payroll together and things like that. Um, you know, we were severely undercapitalized to start. Um, so we, when we added dinner, it only made sense to do Thursday, Fridays and Saturdays in the beginning for us. And then about a year later, we, we expanded that to breakfast, lunch and dinner six days a week. Um, and as far as the fair goes, um, you know, it's, it's, from scratch, uh, Americana, um, and we uh, we try to put a little little twist on everything we do. But but we took great pride from the very beginning on making everything that we we could possibly make in house. You know, down to our our, our jellies and and all of our salad dressings and all of our spreads. And uh, you know, we baked our bread. Um, we um, even you know a couple of years in. Um, we were one of the, we were actually the first brew pub in, in the city of, of San Marcos. And we had a, a friend who was a, a fantastic, uh, brew, brewmaster and he came on board with us. And, and, uh, so we had our own, our own beer that we brewed as well. So, um, for us, that was, you know, 
um, very important. And, and there were a few places around that, that did as much in-house, you know, as, as we did. And, and I'm a big believer that, that when you can make, uh, you know, as much as you can from scratch, it, it translates in the, in the final, the final dish, you know, I, I believe that, you know, you do kind of taste the preservatives and, and the, you know, some of those shelf stabilizers that are, that are in, you know, a lot of the ready-made, um, you know, products that, that you get. So, so that's uh, kind of an overview of, of what we serve. And, and to your question, as far as alcohol goes, uh, beer and wine only um, historically, actually, and that's changing now. We, uh, after eight, almost 18 years, we're uh, in the process of getting our mixed beverage uh, license, actually just secured it uh, a couple weeks ago. So we, we will be transitioning to, to full liquor. Oh, congratulations. Now, Chris tells me that you didn't stop there. You've got several other concepts. Um, and it's interesting to me because, you know, a lot of people we talk to who have are in a growth, uh, have a growth mentality are saying, well, I've got this really good thing going on here and now I'm going to replicate it maybe in the next town over or someplace else. But it sounds like you said, OK, I've got this going on. Now I'm going to add this and this and this. Could you tell us about your other concepts? Um, were they all like your first concept, uh, uh, just kind of built from your imagination from the ground up? Yeah, um, it's. I guess each one has a little bit of a different origin story. Um, you know, I I didn't really see it being a restaurant group like we've become today, and things just have a way of happening opportunities present themselves. And, um, I have a way of getting myself deeper and deeper into trouble No, Um, but, uh, no, the first, uh, opportunity we had to expand to another brand actually was raise ice cream, raise ice cream. And that's R H E a apostrophe S it's named after, uh, the, the founder Ray Otomon. And she was, uh, actually a, a friend and a neighbor who, um, I consulted with to start her business originally. Um, I, I tried to kind of talk her out of it. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I think a lot of us, you know, in the kind of restaurant business or consulting, um, try to open people's eyes to the reality of the industry and the challenges that are there. A lot of people come in or, or have ideas that are very romantic about, you know, well, I've always made ice cream and, you know, and, and I'm just gonna open my own shop. And, and so I, uh, you know, I told her, Ray, I'm going to try to talk you out of this, but if I'm unsuccessful, I'll help you in every way I can. And so she was as stubborn as me and, and as stubborn as you have to be to be a successful restaurateur. Um, so I couldn't talk her out of it. And so I, I consulted with her and then she had a, a, a big hit and won the Austin ice cream uh, uh, festival one year and had a big cult following. And after about five years in business, she called me up one day and said, uh, Kyle, I wanted you to be the first to know since you helped me start the shop that I'm, I'm closing it down. I'm moving to Chicago to be with my partner. And, uh, but I just wanted you to know, and I said, well, Ray, you know, you've got a, you've got a great shop, you know, people, people love what you do. Um, you should sell it, you know, you, you've got some value there, you know, sell your concept. And, and she said, well, it's my name and it's my baby and, and there's nobody I could sell it to unless you wanted it. And I said, Oh, great. Ray. I said, no, no. I said, I, I've got my hands full, but give me a week to tell you no. And in that week, really what, what transpired is, is the model that, that, you know, held true today for us to, uh, you know, to be an expanding restaurant group. And so what happened was a, a dear friend of mine, Lindsay 
Lindsey James Belk, who is my managing partner of Ray's Ice Cream, he had started working for me at the Root Cellar Cafe in year one uh, as a 19-year-old college student and then, you know, worked for about 12 years for me and um, worked his way up into part-time management as he put himself through grad school. Well, he had got a job as an engineer and um, and things didn't work out. They made a bunch of cutbacks and he was back at the restaurant having a little bit of a midlife crisis. And I said, well, Lindsay, there's this, uh, this opportunity that kind of dropped in my lap. Um, you know, uh, what do you think about us doing this together? I don't have time to be the, you know, the operational, uh, you know, boots on the ground. Um, but if, if you do, I can, I can give you all the support. I can tell you, you know, as far as branding concept, you know, procurement, um, accounting, payroll, all those things that I've learned the hard way over the last several years, you know, I'll bring that to the, to the partnership. And, uh, and he was very excited at the opportunity. And so we jumped in. And so we opened or we took over and remodeled and relaunched the Ray's Ice Cream in downtown San Marcos. And, uh, you know, it's everything we do, you know, has a little bit of that creative spin. It's got a, a, a giant squid as the, the brand and the mascot. And so you see this giant squid with ice cream cones coming out of every tentacle. And um, and and so Ray made ice cream from scratch and a lot of it were based off her grandmother's recipe. But everything she did was very creative, even within the ice cream uh, market. You know, she had one of her best sellers was avocado coconut ice cream. And, uh, you know, she was early on like, like bacon flavored ice cream and, uh, you know, um, strawberry, uh, uh, strawberry jam and Nutella, uh, goat cheese and raspberry. Um, so a, a lot of really interesting combinations. Um, and so we, we had some success there with the relaunch of, of, uh, of raise ice cream. Um, you know, I think some of the core business principles were, were missing from what Ray was doing. And we were able to bring what, what we had learned at root cellar cafe, um, the hard way <laughs> always, um, to the table there. And, and it was kind of an eye opening moment for me, it, you know, it, then I saw opportunities kind of, kind of everywhere like that, right. Like, you know, some, some good solid potential locations or concepts that, that maybe could be taken to, uh, another level or some other opportunities in the space um, to work with some other managing partners in that way, where we, we could bring, you know, the, the back end to, uh, to the partnership and, and have somebody else that, you know, is the, the first call at midnight when, when the toilet breaks or, you know, <laughs> some of those other operational things, because you can't, you know, we have seven, seven going on eight properties. Now you can't, can't possibly be everywhere. So we've got to have, you know, uh, got to have a lot of help in that regard. And so the next, the next um, concept that we had after Ray's ice cream was um, similarly with uh, Megan Turbeville, who started as uh, a line cook for me. And then at the root cellar cafe in year one and became our executive chef. And uh, there was a, a giant hole in the catering market in um, San Marcos. And so we started trying to fill that hole out of the root cellar kitchen um, as best we could quickly outgrew that. And there was an opportunity across the street and, uh, we, uh, we decided to launch, uh, the root cellar, uh, bakery. Um, the idea being that the bakery would utilize the, the kitchen space, you know, from four or five in the morning until around noon. And then from about noon on is really when the catering operation would be ramping up and we were able to kind of, um, share, uh, and leverage that space for a couple different kind of concepts out of one. And uh, we just recently outgrew that space and uh, and relocated to a, 
uh, repurposed a, a large Chinese buffet in Kyle, Texas. And, uh, and we have a giant kitchen that we're able to operate out of uh, now. And um, we service uh, a lot of the Hill Country venues, the wedding market there in uh, Dripping Springs and the Austin area. Um, and then uh, those were really uh, the three concepts that we had and that we were rolling with um, for, for several years. And then um, in 2018, uh, a couple of other opportunities presented themselves. And uh, those were in New Braunfels, which is just a little farther south from San Marcos. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, we decided to open our second location of Ray's Ice Cream um, because we were you know, essentially vertically integrated. We were producing and manufacturing our own ice cream. So uh, once we uh, really wrapped our head around that, we, we realized that, that ice cream needs such a tiny footprint. Um, you know, we can almost operate out of a glorified kiosk as long as we have centralized manufacturing and we deliver to ourselves. And uh, so we got a location there right across from a giant water park, Slitterbond, for those of you that, that know Texas and have been. Um, so it was a great high traffic location. Uh, and we, we launched our, our second raise ice cream location there and uh, had, had good success. And then um, shortly thereafter, we, we launched uh, another brand called the Green Grove. And that was really has been our first foyer into uh, the, the bar scene. Um, it is uh, in a little, a little town called Green, Texas, which is really an offshoot of New Braunfels, but it's kind of a it's kind of an old cowboy town almost. It's kind of a throwback, but it's a very, very high, uh, high density tourist attraction um, with, you know, Texas's oldest dance hall is right next to, to our, our venue there. And, and so people kind of come from all over to go there. And, and uh, we, we just, once again, opportunities present themselves. We just seem to be in the right place at the right time. Opportunities never come up in this, in this location. Uh, and, and somehow we, we were able to get, get a spot. And uh, we launched the Green Grove, which is uh, a, a beer garden, outdoor, largely outdoor venue, um, music, live music, uh, several nights a week. Uh, we launched a third location of Ray's Ice Cream there. Uh, and then uh, we opened a speakeasy called Goodwins in the, uh, in the basement of, uh, of, of an old historic house there. Once again, another old property, um, another filled with old things, um, which is on brand for me. Um, and my managing partner there is uh, Chris Rue, and uh, he was a, a longtime friend. And really, I had I had a lot of trepidation when it came to the the bar industry, mm-hmm. uh, mixed beverage, and, and the potential exposure and liability that that is inherent in that industry. And uh, and there was really only one person that I would I would do that with and somebody that I trust implicitly. And that was Chris. He had a lot of experience and launching a couple other concepts and he was, um, he was a, a, a dear friend. And so, so we jumped in and, and launched the green grove there and the same year, uh, which is a year that my family didn't see me very much <laughs> the same year we, yeah. uh, we created uh, 10 top burgers and, uh, uh, and launched that. And that is, uh, on, uh, the other side of the old historic house where, across from the water park we took over we were able to acquire the rest of that property and uh and launch an, an old-fashioned hamburger concept um very streamlined just 10 10 uh burgers um fries tots onion rings very focused concept um but we launched that with uh um, chase Peetford, who had been one of my one of my head chefs at the root cellar cafe um for uh 
going back to year one, once again. So uh, all of my managing partners, um, uh, with the exception of, of Chris Rue, uh, had worked for me at the Root Cellar Cafe for over a decade. And so it turned out to be, uh, inadvertently, it turned out to be a little bit of an incubator for our restaurant group. So you, you have a commissary, um, it sounds like, if, I'm, if I heard you correctly, um, for for the ice cream, for baker goods. In terms of running all these different concepts, is there anything that you've done to consolidate management technology? Um, are there any economies of scale that you're finding um, that someone who had multiple units of the same concept would enjoy but are you able to streamline your operations by consolidating the aspects of it, if that makes sense? Yeah, it, it makes sense. And, and uh, you know, we're finding more opportunities there now, you know, over the, you know, we've really, that's, that's the new goal, right, is, is uh, getting smoother, getting more streamlined, more economies of scale. Um, and, and there are opportunities that are obvious, you know, that, that were there from the beginning. You know, obviously we have, relationships with with our vendors right and we're able to leverage you know obviously groceries being number one um and then it it works its way down to all your smaller vendors whether it be linens or your 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 bug guy or or your dairy guy or, or any of any of them right and so so we're able to uh to operate as a as a much larger group we have the buying power of the large group even though um, we're very compartmentalized when it comes to the different concepts. So, uh, you know, obviously our ice cream, you know, the, you know, stores go through a ton of dairy, right? You know, much more so than, than my bar. My bar doesn't use any dairy, you know. So, um, but we're able to still uh, bring, you know, the big brother aspect to negotiating table when it comes to those things. Sure. Now, technology is something that we're working through right now, trying to find a little bit more uh, synergy there because, you know, and there are some better options out there now than there were, you know, several years ago. Um, but but a, a certain POS system worked really well for, you know, for counter service at the ice cream shop, but it wasn't robust enough for, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner with, with uh, you know, pages of modifiers for, you know, for the Root Cellar Cafe. So um, now we're trying to, we, we actually have found some things that are, are fitting the bill for multiple concepts because that's been really the pain, the pain point. One of the main pain points on the back end for us is, you know, we've got, you know, at one time four different POS POS systems. You know, we're trying to synthesize all that information on the back end, and, and it created a lot more work. So we're we're getting there when it comes to that. Um, and uh, you know, I think the other thing that we're finding right now is, uh, and this is the biggest at least it's been the biggest challenge for us. And I, I think it's the same for, for most operators out there when it comes to hiring and retention, you know, we're finding some opportunities there because um, we're able to cast a much wider net when it comes to hiring and some people that, that maybe applied for a position that was filled, you know, at, at the cafe by somebody else. It was a better fit there. Well, you know, we've got this opportunity for you, you know, with the catering company. And we actually think you're a better fit there. Would you like to interview for that? And uh, so we've actually been able to kind of move some of the pieces around a little bit over the last year and uh, plug some of the holes that everybody's everybody's experiencing. And, uh, and so it's been very helpful uh, in that regard. And then, you know, uh, we're able to um, utilize and leverage the, the group to um, be a bigger 
um, a bigger pool of employees and allow us to uh, secure benefits that we're able to offer um, for for employees now. You know, so that's that's been you know a long, long uh, standing goal of mine to get to a place where we could offer you know benefits and uh, and you know each individual brand was was not big enough on their own, but we were able to to come as a as a restaurant group collective and uh, achieve that. That's, that, that's huge, Chris. I, I, I want to underscore that, Chris, yeah. because I, I teach a workforce planning course at the university where I'm on faculty, and I, I was actually talking to some of the students. They're between 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, and they said it's, it's a huge deal for them. They even talking about money and salary. They want to go to work someplace where there's some opportunity for growth. Yeah, you know, they can go from yeah. and, and, you know, we, we, we talk about millennials. These are Gen Z. They're young. They're the people coming to work for you um, out of school. And they just want to know, hey, if I go to work for you, what's it what's here for me in three years? What's here for right. me in four years? So I, I think that's awesome. And you've been able to get that competitive advantage for labor the way you have. You know, uh, Kyle, that's that is that does I think deserve a little extra attention because there's two things that I'd really like you to talk a little bit more about for our listeners to hone in on because they just came so naturally for you. But when when we normally talk to people who are expanding, they don't. And that is, it seems like the first thing that you talked about when you were expanding was taking advantage of opportunities within your geographic space. Usually when I talk to people that are expanding, they have one concept, one brand, and their first thought is, I want to leave my geographic space and spread it all out. I got to go to this city and this city and this state and this state. And you chose to say, why don't I stay within this circle that I understand and just do more things here? That's one. And then the second one is each concept you talked about. In the first sentence that you talked about, it started with the person. I took this person who was with me from day one, or I took this person and put him into a management partner program. So it's like you led with people. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how that worked for you, because usually people that Barry and I talk with talk about expansion. First off, spread the brand out. Secondly, it always starts with the funding. I got to find the funding, then I'm going to find the place. And then, of course, I'm going to be hiring people as I open. You turned that completely around and it's working for you. So can you explain yeah. a little bit yeah, more? Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, you know, to the first point or, or question about the opportunities within our immediate area, um, I think it's it's probably primarily um, the fact that I I really, truly love the town that I live in <laughs> of San Marcos. And I, I wanted to make that as great a place as I really could. And, and by taking some of these places that were maybe underperforming or, or opportunities within that market. Um, you know, now, now I will say full disclosure, it's been a, a bumpy road and a, a big learning curve because, you know, I, I thought foolishly that more would translate to ice cream from, from, from the restaurant, full service restaurant than, than actually did. Right. You know, each, each industry and each, you know, um, brand is, is really, um, just different enough from the other ones to have a whole learning curve. And, and you know, that, that really, um, you know, obviously there are a lot of things that, that do translate, but there's a lot to, to just learning and being a master of ice cream, right. That, that it's not low hanging fruit, you know, to do it really well. I mean, people spend their, their life learning ice cream, people spend their life learning coffee and, and, and really, 
you know, um, succeeding in that industry alone. So I, I don't want it to come across like it, it was easier. We just, uh, we opened the ice cream shop and, and it was great. And then, oh, well, we'll do, we'll do coffee and we'll do a bakery and we'll do catering. So it wasn't that there was a, it was, a, it was a, every one of them was a, a big challenge. We were undercapitalized with each concept, but I did um, one thing I, you know, that we're branching out of now that's getting me out of my comfort zone and to bring it back to your point of people that want to try to take something and replicate it across the country is, is markets are so different in my opinion, you know um, you know, it's not a one size fits all when it comes to any market and something that works great in a suburb of Austin, Texas, I have no idea if that's going to, it's going to fly in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Right. You know, I, I don't know there, you know, there are some things that will work and there's some core principles that, you know, are tried and true and things like that. But um, but for me, I understood the San Marcos, uh, New Braunfels, Austin market really, really well. And um, I think that's, you know, for all of my shortcomings and, and faults as a, you know, a entrepreneur, you know, I, I have this gut feeling that I, I can kind of feel what, what the clientele, if I spend enough time in a place, I can kind of understand the clientele and the vibe and, and what, um, what they want or, or, or what speaks to them. And so we were able to do that in San Marcos with those, those different concepts. And then, uh, and then we've been able to do it in New Braunfels uh, as well. And so for me, you know, we're kind of at a point now where, you know, we're looking beyond my, my bubble. <laughs> so, so we're going to, we're going to be taking a, a, a step, you know, with probably some of our next um, growth opportunities um, beyond that. And we're going to be putting some of those things to the test and making sure that, that, uh, that we understand the markets that we're going into and, and really try to spend some time in a, in a real genuine way in those markets before we try to open something up there and make sure that we're not off base on, on uh, where we're going and, and what they want and, and what's going to succeed there. Um, and then to your second question and point um, for me, you know, it, you know, if, if I didn't, I spoke to this just a little bit earlier, but if I, if I didn't have the right operator um, uh, it's a, it's, it's a non-starter for me, you know, I, I, unfortunately the ideas and the concepts and the creative part is the easy part for me. Um, you know, for a lot of us, it is the idea part is, uh, is, is somewhat easy, but, but the reality is once you, once you give birth to that baby or that brand or that concept, somebody has got to raise it, you know, and, and it's, it's a really difficult job to raise that baby. And so for me, it's gotta be somebody that, that has skins on the wall that, that I know that, and, and, you know, historically it's been somebody that I've worked in the trenches with for over 10 years. And I know, you know, when, when the crap hits the fan, I know how they're going to respond. I know what kind of leader they are. I know that I can trust them 1000% with, with everything that I own, because that's what you're doing with an operator of your, you know, of your establishment. You know, the, the amount of trust is so high there. Um, so for me, uh, you know, I knew, uh, you know, hundred percent that I could, I could trust the people that, um, that we launched these brands with. You, you know, as you describe each of your concepts, starting with your first, um, to me, what I take away from it, there's a huge guest experience element of these. I want to visit these places. I don't want to just the food. I want to go there. I want to hang out. I want to look at what's going on. I want to see the other people. And, you know, we talked to a lot of people and said, well, yeah, you know, a pandemic. So we had to, we had to, you know, figure out how we're going to do some off-premises and you seem to be really focused on a place where you want to be there physically at least that's my impression um where's 
you know, we're coming out of the pandemic. People are as a pent up demand to be in great places like what you're creating. But how did you navigate that when when business was kind of bucking its head against, you know, uh, all the attention on to off premises dining? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, we took a, a, a different approach than a lot of people um, when the when the pandemic hit, you know, uh, obviously things were changing by the minute, by the hour. Um, and, you know, I just early on, it got to a point where I felt this extreme responsibility to our staff and our employees and our community. I spoke a lot about how much I, I care about the communities that we're in and the, the people that, that I work with. Um, and I just didn't know for sure if if my decisions were going to be putting them in a place of danger. Um, there was a lot of data coming out, you know, that that the restaurants were a dangerous spot, you know, that, that there was a, a lot of community spread that was happening in restaurants. And, and so um, I it weighed on me very heavily. Um, and so what I decided to do and, and at the same time, and this is not unique to my workforce, I'm sure a lot of the other uh, operators out there would, would be able to speak to this on some level. A lot of my staff wasn't ready to come back early on. You know, they were they were in a position where they were receiving stimulus money um, and they, too, weren't quite sure if it was going to be safe to be in, in a in in the cafe, especially is a is a basement of a, an old building. It's a very close, you know, our our physical location is different than a lot of other people's. It's a very um, close quarters. Right. It's a it's an intimate space, um, which which you know, led to the, you know, part of, partly to the decision to stay closed. We were the last dining room to open in the city of San Marcos, I think. Um, and uh, so we did relaunch with patio service and we, we launched with, you know, obviously with, um, you know, delivery and, and we worked through the third party delivery, you know, companies as much as we could. Um, but the, what that allowed us to do um, was to really spend some time, going to school on, on the PPP and the idol and the RRF and the different things that were available um, at, at that time. And even the um, employee retention tax credit, you know, that, that a, a lot of people kind of missed out there um, that, uh, that allowed us to really get all of our paperwork clean, done the front of the line, because, you know, we weren't operating and it's really, you know, I wrestled with this. I talked at length with my partners and, and my, you know, my my wife and and uh, about it was so counterintuitive as an entrepreneur what I did. You know, what we did as a group at that time, because everything in your DNA is screaming, "Go, go, go, go!" Wait on whatever, whoever you can. You know, set a bunch of tables up. You know, or you know, I'll deliver. We we threw around ideas. Okay, well, you know, we'll deliver groceries when the grocery stores were closed at the very beginning. All these things, right? You're you know, creative juices are flowing, your problem solving, you know, uh, brain is just going crazy. And I had to fight against all of that and just, just refocus all that energy into, um, setting us up, um, to, you know, secure all the, the assistance that was available. And, and then when we did relaunch, it was at a point where, um, the restrictions had loosened up considerably and the demand had been pent up. And so, we were able to relaunch at a time where we weren't now we weren't profitable when we relaunched at, at really any, any of the concepts, but we weren't as deficient as, as those several months where a lot of people um, were, 
were struggling and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, working through all the capital that they had and there's not a right answer, you know, and, and like I said, everybody's situation is completely different, but, um, but that's, that's what we did. And, and that's what, um, what, what helped us, you know, get, get through. Mm -hmm. The um, mentioned earlier about how these concepts are, are led by a managing partner. You've referred to your partners a few times. Would you explain how that's structured? Um, How does your management managing structure position look like? Yeah. um, So the taproot is the, the name of the the parent company. Um, And uh, you know, the, the, Taproot owns 100% of Root Cellar Cafe, um, and then we have uh, equity partners of different percentages for each, uh, and they're they're minority but equity equity uh, partners with each uh, brand, and uh, some of that came through uh, a combination of of capital investment, and some of it came over a course of several years of sweat equity. Okay. Um, so there was, um, you know, some of them was a combination of both, um, and. You know what the parent company, what Taproot does, um, amongst you know many other things, but but really some of our core functions are uh, the payroll, um, HR, accounting, um, really handling the, the marketing and the branding, um, and and then you know a million other little things. But but through uh, through that service, um, we we operate off of a a, a fee. Uh, from each, you know, from each uh, subsidiary. Um, and then, you know, should there be uh, profits to distribute, you know, managing partner would, would get, you know, their distribution and, and then the, the parent company, things would flow up to the parent company for, for theirs. So the managing partner works like the GM of the unit, but mm-hmm. is actually either a through set sweat equity or some type of investment, a bottom line profit participant. Absolutely. Yes. And so they'll, you know, um, they'll receive a salary for their managerial duties or GM or director duties um, and then participate uh, on the owner level as well. Not a, not, not a unlike let us entertain you where, you know, their, you know, their managers uh, can have a piece of the action and have some skin in the game. Um, yeah. It certainly would inspire them to, uh, uh, to be concerned about profitability. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and to kind of bring it back to your point earlier, uh, Barry, you know, about uh, attracting talent, you know, and, you know, they want to know there's some upward mobility. I, I think it gives us a lot of credibility. Uh, I've noticed in the last couple of years when, when I talk to, you know, our staff, whether it be at the restaurant or one of our other companies. Um, and, and I, you know, I kind of peel back the curtain a little bit because it's not, you know, what we're discussing here is not super common knowledge about how our company is structured, you know? Um, so we have to kind of educate new employees that look, you know, this, this partner in, in our, you know, about to be fourth ice cream shop started out as a 19 year old waiter sitting right where you're sitting in an employee meeting. And he worked his butt off for over a decade and kicked butt and an opportunity presented itself. And, and now he's my business partner, you know, and, and, you know, the same thing here with my manager and my burger shop, same thing, you know, here with, you know, my manager in our catering company. And so it gives us some credibility there. And, you know, I think it also speaks to um, the, the collective, you know, success, Right. You know, I think, you know, it's really hard for us as restaurateurs and entrepreneurs not to be micromanagers. I think it goes against our nature on some level, because um, if you've opened up a place, you have to have a very 
clear vision, you know, um, to be successful and, and you have to, um, you know, pick your battles. Um, but at, at the same time, um, there's only so far you can ever get by yourself. Um, and you have to, you have to build a coalition and a, and a big team. And, uh, and, and for, for me, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather own, you know, less than a hundred percent of, of four ice cream shops and have, you know, this great success and this partnership that, that works great and, and be able to provide ownership for, a, you know, a, a friend and partner than have none or, or, or have a hundred percent of that. And then, you know, my wife left me and, you know, cause I'm working, you know, 150 hours a week again. So it's, it speaks to balance for me. You know, it's like, there's only one way that this thing grows and it's by, um, you know, it's by making sure that, that we set this up to where we all win and, uh, and that it's, it's about sustainability. And I think that's something that's very elusive in the restaurant business, you know, and we speak to that, you know, when we hire a manager, you know, uh, you know, at the, especially at the retailer cafe, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, you know, three meals a day is an animal that never sleeps. It's really, really difficult, but we really work hard to keep our, our managers at, you know, 50 hours or under, you know, we do everything that we can a week um, because, you know, they stay, you know, I, I don't want to burn people out and I don't want to be hiring managers all the time because I saved a, a couple bucks or I squeeze them a little too hard. You know, it's, it's about sustainability and longevity as far as our long-term growth goes. Well, that's so well said. And I hope everyone's making note of that because we do uh, talk to people that are running one or more than one unit. And it doesn't take very long for people to come around to the fact of people. How do I care for them? How do I keep them? How do I engage with them? I'm always looking for people. And I just made notes of the advantages that you just so easily spoke about by having a managing partner because it provides growth and a tremendous incentive for the staff to see where they might be able to go. It also provides ownership on site, on time, as well as, of course, the the goal that we would immediately assume. And that means the GM now thinks a little bit more like an owner and that care for the bottom line. So it's, it's the triple play and everybody wins. I, I would hope more people would take that lesson and do it themselves. I'm going to say, I mean, I said it earlier, but I'll restate it. Um, the culture you've created, Kyle, is the culture that is going to attract the best talent. It's going to be the culture that is going. Everybody else is going to have to compete against, and that's 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 how I see it. Well, that's great. It's great to hear. I mean, we're you know we're we're doing our best, and and it's uh, it's challenging times, you know, for for all of us in, in the industry. But it definitely seems feels like we're rounding a little bit of a corner. You know, the the consumer confidence is back. Um, and so, so that's one piece of the puzzle. Now we just have to figure out how to afford the labor and the cost of goods to yeah. get there. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole other, that's a whole other podcast. Huh? Well, yes. you know what? Yeah. But could we just speak to that quickly? Have you had success in negotiating a little bit on the procurement? Have you had success with, with guests with say price increases or what have you done so far? Yeah. You know, um, you know, it's, it's, there's no silver bullet with any of it, as y'all know, it's, it's going to be, you know, a little bit from a lot of different places. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, we're starting to see some of the, some of the commodities level out, right. 
which is great. Obviously, gas prices have leveled out a little bit, which you know has a lot to do with all that. So um, the hope is that we're going to start seeing some more dips in some of the cost of goods. Um, the labor is not going to go the other direction <laughs> ever again, right? Um, and, and we know that. And there's a, a few really important reasons why it's not. I mean, there were, you know, there were a lot in the industry, especially in the back of the house, that were not making enough money. And, uh, and they had opportunities, you know, for the first time. That's the way I see it. You know, they, they were, you know, going back to when the pandemic first hit, they had time and money to explore opportunities. And a lot of times people in the restaurant business, you know, in the back of the house, especially, you know, are paycheck to paycheck. And, and they're maybe with a company that, that's not taking care of them or, or not paying, you know, paying them well enough in the back of the house to, to really deserve that loyalty when something like the pandemic hit. And so it's also completely connected in a complex way, as you all know, to the, the end price for the consumer, right? I mean, it's all been driving this lower than market price for an end product for a long time, right? It's not the restaurateurs that were, that were winning. It's not the independent restaurant guy that's making a fortune because, you know, servers are making 213 or because people in the back of the house are, are not making what, you know, what they are making now. Um, but um, it's, it's going to be about passing it on. you got two options now. You're, you're either going to pass on the costs of, of labor that have gone, you know, substantially higher, you know, 20, 30% at least in a lot of, a lot of categories um, and the cost of goods. You're either going to pass that on to the consumer or you're going to go out of business in our industry. Right. And it's really that simple, unfortunately. Um, but the, you know, the art and the, um, the secret sauce is in how you do that and how fast do you do it? Right. That's where, that's where we have all the decisions as far as the, uh, the operators right now. I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of sticker shock if you just try to hit your customers with a, you know, a 40% uh, increase overnight, you know, I think you're going to have you know, outrage and you, you'd probably be in a lot of trouble. So how fast can we pass that on? And, uh, and what becomes a loss leader now, you know, that maybe wasn't before, you know? Um, so those are the questions. Those are the difficult questions that you have to ask yourself now. And uh, if you're not, you know, really um, set up with an inventory control system or, or managing your cost of goods in a very close way and, and reprinting those menu prices, you know, at least quarterly, you're going to be in a lot of trouble right now. I think. There you go. Yeah, yeah. No, there you go. Manage costs and review your menu at least seasonally. Good, good points. Uh, Barry, you might find humor in this. I mean, yesterday I was at a small independent operator's restaurant that I know well. Um, he's just, it's a casual restaurant. He's known for really good over the top, you know, fresh ground burgers. And um, his bacon cheeseburger that pre-pandemic was $10.99 is now at $13. And he had very little pushback. But I think in this particular situation, uh, he followed pretty much your steps because he's been monitoring the menu, adjusting things that don't sell, um, and uh, purchasing wisely, inventory control better than ever before in every few months, adjusting, reviewing costs, and setting prices. I think that's, that's going to be the new world. And hopefully the consumers are going to come back and enjoy it and commit to it. Yep. And the added value, um, you know, on the top line is, is it a good guest experience? Is it a place that you want to go? Um, nobody wants to spend more on food if 
they're not getting a really nice experience while they're there eating. And it sounds like you've handled, you've addressed that very well. So um, I, I can't agree. ignore that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that point right there, Barry, that, um, that r- right now the consumer knows, you know, there is some cover for us as an industry because everybody is raising prices because everybody has to. And it's all over the news everywhere. There's no secret of why, you know, and you're not the only place that's doing it. I mean, I went to a, a national chain today and had a, a, a tea and a soup and salad and it was $19, right? You, you know, um, so, you know, it's it's everywhere, right? But they're going to be a lot, there's a lot more discretion with where they're going to go, right? Because, you know, that they want to make sure that they've got the value in that experience because um, they do know it's going to cost more, right? And the, and, and the inflation is starting to pinch from both sides for the consumer. So they're going to be a lot more choosy about where they're going. So if, you know, you can raise the prices because we, we have to ultimately, but you've got to make sure that that experience is there because if it's not, they're, you know, it stings a little bit more, you know, if someone has a lackluster experience at, at your restaurant um, when they're paying these elevated prices and, and they're going to be much more likely, in my opinion, to not come back um, than, than they were before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You're right. Well, not only are you right on that point, but Kyle, it's been wonderful talking with you. You've been right on target with the principles on how you manage, how you grow, how you develop people. Uh, so we really, really appreciate the time that you took out of your day to share with us. That's uh, Camellias, multiple brands, Root Cellar. I've got to go to Goodwood Speakeasy. Now that, that's one of my other things. And, and also I'm going back to Ray's Ice Cream. So multiple brands. Uh, we wish you continued success. It's been my pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And I hope to see you all again real soon on another Corner Booth. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.